Welcome to the Recruitment Flex with Serge and Shelly. I'm Serge. And I'm Shelly. And we talk all things recruitment starting right now. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Recruitment Flex. I'm Shelly, and joined with me is my co-host, Serge Boudreaux. Serge, another episode, another day, yeah. another week. Wow, this is going quickly. <laughs> yeah, 77 episodes is where we're at right now. So yes. basically, at least one episode for the last, I don't know, 70 weeks. So it's been a ton, but... I've known you for a long time, Shelly, yes. uh, and we've been on this podcast and we've become even closer. And I learned something from you yesterday that was a little bit of a shocker to me. So to oh. give uh, the audience a little bit of context, uh, yesterday I asked Shelly, I'm like, hey, we haven't met face to face in a long time. So come over to my house. We're going to go for a walk. I have a beautiful park oh. in, the back, uh, in the back that goes to this great coffee shop in the middle of nowhere. We can sit down and chat and catch up. I told her, bring your hiking shoes or your sneakers. And you told me you don't own a pair of hiking boots, which I get. Okay, fair enough. Cool. But we do live in the Rocky Mountains, the most yeah. beautiful hikes that you can probably go in the world. But I'm like, okay, I'll just bring your sneakers. It's not really a hike. And you told me you don't own a pair of sneakers. I've never heard of anyone not owning runners or sneakers. It's true. It's What's true. The deal? What do you wear when you go out? Um, so shoes has always been a big deal to me my whole life. I think when I was in my 20s, like before I was married and had kids and all I cared about was shoes. I think at one point, Serge, I had over 70 pairs of shoes, seven, zero pairs of shoes. Maybe back then I had an actual pair of athletic footwear that you would call runners or joggers or whatever. But no, I honestly, I do not own a pair of runners. I, I don't. So when you go for a walk, what do you wear? There's uh, Skechers. They're more of a casual footwear. I do have walking shoes, but they're not runners. They're not hiking boots. They're Ooh. something that is a little more, they're not as ugly. <laughs> oh, runners are, are I, I, I think runners are ugly. No, um, no, no. Oh, I... yes, they are. And they are dreadful. Like some of them can be super expensive. And I, I know people that actually collect footwear, as maybe I did in my youth. But it is true. Serge, do you remember? Here we go. So do you remember when you and I first met, I was a huge client for Workopolis for, for Western Canada. Yep. And I think it was you or Leah that nominated me to carry the Olympic torch as it was going out to the Vancouver Olympics in 2011, right? 2010. Yeah. 2010. Okay. So I am nominated to carry the torch. And I honest to God had to borrow a pair of runners from somebody. I have not worn a pair of shoes in the last 18 months that are not runners. Sorry. I only. 10 pairs of them. I wear runners with basically everything. And I think they look better than any shoe. It's there's ugly shoes. Don't get me wrong. But then you mentioned Skechers. Like Skechers are talk about boomer. Skechers oh, are the you, ugliest you, shoes oh that God. you can ever you, get in oh the my world. God. Like they, oh my God. You're so hurtful. Oh my God. I can't believe you said that. There's not a shoe that is more boomer than a Skecher. <laughs> I've actually and lost quite a bit of respect for you right now on that. So I was giving you a category of footwear, Serge. There is 
a category of footwear that is not runners. I think runners are very juvenile. <gasps> Did I say that out loud? No, that's fine. Oh, you just, I'm very juvenile. It, I think there may be coming a time here that you need to start adulting and wearing real no, shoes. No, no, I've gone the other way. I've gone well, the other way. You need to wear I used real to be, shoes. Like real nice shoes oh, all the time. It no. would be really hard to see me in normal shoes anymore. I love my runners. Okay. All right, You'll then. see, Shelly. I get okay. style. I get style. <laughs> All right, introduce the topics. Okay, so we got three great things that we're going to chat about today. First of all, we're going to talk about what it means to be a full cycle recruiter, something I've always been and mm -hmm. love doing. The second thing we're going to talk about is what are some of the skills of a great sourcer? Yep. Mm -hmm. And I know you and I talked about this quite a few episodes ago. So we'll have more of a discussion. We'll see where that discussion goes. And then the third thing is we're going to touch on a little bit of a hot topic right now. And that is maybe why HR needs to keep their claws off diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the reasons why your take, my take, I know we have a different take on this. So Do we? We will come back to this. I think we okay. might. I think we might be a little apart on this. Let's dive in with full cycle recruiter and what is a full yep. cycle recruiter. So, Serge, in your experience, um, have you always been a full cycle? Yes, I have. So let's take a step back how we define being a full cycle recruiter, because generally cool. full cycle recruiters live in the staffing space. Right. Where yeah. I grew up and you grew up. Yeah, I spent some time, yeah. not a yeah, lot yeah. of time. So I haven't okay. spent a lot of time and it depends on the organization. You'll see it with smaller organizations that don't have large HR team or support. You're going to do basically every step of the way. My experience is I've either had a coordinator or I've handed it off in the process at one particular time. So I haven't spent a lot of time being a full cycle recruiter, mm -hmm. except in the staffing space. So the way it's defined and why it's, it's closely aligned, there's a couple of points. So this is how they categorize it. There's basically six steps and this is oversimplified. And I think we can dig in deeper a little bit on it. But the first step is getting the job order. I think that's an interesting one because just getting a job order from a client and this is where I think it differentiates the really good staffing and recruiter. Are they just taking here's the job description get me this or are they not taking the role unless they can have an in-depth conversation and really getting a sense of what the role is. If the hiring manager or the recruiter on the other end is not willing to have that conversation with you as a staffing company, I can tell you're wasting your time. That's my mm -hmm. opinion because you're going to spend uh, maybe hundreds of hours finding the right people, sending it to them, and you're going to find out really early that person is not qualified. It's not what they're looking for. So all these right. hours spent recruiting was just wasted. So the first step intake mm -hmm. of a role is the most critical aspect, I think, in recruiting. I don't know how you feel about it, Shelley. Yeah. So two things. Yes, I did spend 11 years in the agency, staffing agency world. And yeah. uh, mastering this step in the process is directly connected to how successful you're going to be. So I, I absolutely agree. Even more importantly, for maybe the HR people in our audience or recruiters that are corporate. I think this is an important thing to understand when you're building a relationship with a recruiting agency. Now, 
if you're going to an agency and it's contingency, in other words, you as the company don't pay until, unless you hire the person referred or retainer. So recruiters that work on retainer, I can tell you absolutely master the job order. And I can usually tell within first 45 seconds, whether or not the recruiter that's taking the order has a, a true grasp on how this process works because of what they ask. And so if you're as a agency recruiter, not spending at least 30 to 45 minutes on the phone, really understanding what the client is looking for, why each skill is important to them, why the education is important to them. And if you're not really extracting from them, what constitutes a great candidate, not perfect, there's no such thing. So the cautionary tale here for corporate recruiters is if your plan is to call three different contingency firms and get all three of them to work on it, a big mistake. Playing one against the other and thinking that they're never going to find out. Well, in the agency world, it's their job to know if you have this staffing order with any staffing firm. Because I know for me, if I knew that, Sure, I'll take the order. If I happen to find somebody, in other words, if they land in my lap, I'll refer them. But if you really think for one second that a staffing recruiter is going to spend a hundred hours with no retainer, yeah, you're like you're delusional. You don't know what you're doing as when you're working with a staffing firm. It goes to the point of if you're a staff, if you can't get a retainer, get exclusivity. And a lot of recruiters don't ask. Recruiters or whoever is selling uh, the service ask for that exclusivity as part of the deal is getting. Because what the mindset of people that don't understand recruitment is great, we're going to have three people on it. So they're all going to be competing and thinking they're going to get a better result. It actually does the opposite because obviously a recruiter like any is going to spend some time and effort on where they think they can get a return. They'll take it. But if the candidate falls in their lap, then they'll present it. But they're not going to go out crazy when they know there's two or three other firms that are working on the same. So the intake and how you set up the initial order is absolutely critical because it it aligns the next steps because the next steps are identifying the ideal candidate. How do you identify the ideal candidate if you don't have all the info you need? And there's tons of resources on the internet on how to do a proper intake meeting. This should be the first training of any recruiter coming into a space is understanding in what type of questions and what does the answer to the question, what should be the follow-up to it being a good interviewer is basically similar as a good intake meeting. So you cannot identify ideal candidates without really understanding. Then the next step is start sourcing candidates. Sourcing candidates means two different things. So there's sourcing candidates directly and being a sorcerer. And this is not only going on LinkedIn and clicking a few buttons and sending a few in-mails. It's figuring out where the people that we're looking for reside. Where do they work, play, live? What type of sites do they go on and targeting them in those places? And there's also sourcing is also in one aspect, recruitment marketing, right? It's like being where these candidates are and being available. Mm -hmm. So you get an Mm -hmm. inbound flow of candidates as well. So, but you can't do that properly 
unless you understand right. the first step. Everything's hinged on it for sure. Do you know the other thing I wanted to add around sourcing candidates is my approach always was to go to choose a uh, job family that transcends industry sectors. So here's what I mean by that is when I was in the staffing world, specialized in occupational health and safety professionals across Canada, because they transcend industry sectors. And so sourcing candidates is an ongoing nonstop job. So yes, you've got a database of candidates, but it's people that I had been talking to over the years where I said to them, tell me the top three things you'd need to hear if I have an opportunity come in that you would take my call and you would potentially go interview with the client. And that's what I built in the database of candidates was yep. what's important to the candidate. I knew their skills. I knew the, that particular job family. And if transportation wasn't hiring occupational health and safety, then healthcare was, do you know what I mean? So it really insulated me as a recruiter that is full cycle recruiter. It really insulated me from the different ebb and flow in different industry sectors. Rarely did I ever post on a job board because well, I saw it as I saw it as part of my job to always be reaching out and talking to people. I would dedicate at least two hours of my day to always be talking to candidates. I don't disagree with that, but also in reality, how people look for jobs and how the market is still, you want to find people maybe that you haven't connected in the past. And that's where the value of, of job boards are. And when I say job boards, there's there's the job boards that we all know. So the Indeed, is it recruiters? But when I talk about job boards, uh, there's niche, but there's also avenues where you can advertise to candidates that would be a good fit that are not considered job boards. Example, targeting people on, on Facebook, targeting people on sites that are industry specific, GitHub or yeah, uh, yeah. that people sure, live. Sure. There's an aspect of trying to go out and find them. Depending on the type of role, it's massively time consuming. Recruitment is not yeah, always yeah. finding people, it's people finding you. So you have to be very visible. I think you stole your thunder on your next discussion <laughs> where we were going to talk about sourcing. Yeah, that's a, a glimpse into our next topic. And that's exactly. sourcing for sure. The next step is screening candidates. It goes back to the first step. If you haven't done a great job of an in intake, you have a really understanding. What are you screening for? What are you screening out? How do you make sure you have the right candidate? Mm -hmm. Screening candidates is an art and a science, in my opinion. There's very specific questions you can ask to get to the answers that you need. But really where the magic happens, in my opinion, is figuring out what those answers mean and digging in deeper to get a real sense of who that person is, not just a surface level. So I think... Mm -hmm. Screening candidates have a plan what you want to get out of the conversation. For sure. What, and then getting judging the answers based on what that plan is. So screening candidates is, is very straightforward. A lot of companies, the recruiters are not screening. It's either done by a coordinator or it's an AI tool or it's a video interview tool, which has become a lot more prevalent as a way to screen candidates. I know how you feel about it. We're not going to argue about it. And high volume, I think it has some value. Cool, cool. So candidate I've, interviews perhaps. and feedback. Mm -hmm. This seems all simple. I think everyone that's listening to this understands all these steps, but this is what it means to be a full cycle recruiter. 
in the world of mm -hmm. staffing, we also talk about a 360 desk. So this is the customer service, the sales and the fulfillment, which I think is a crazy way to do it. I don't know how you feel, but I've never been a fan of the 360 desk because most people are going to focus on what they like the most. So, but how do you feel about 360 desks in general? So I think it is really rare that people can be very successful on a 360 desk. There's a certain personality type, and I believe it is those who absolutely love having control because you're controlling every aspect of how it starts, how it ends, and the outcome. And it's also for those who are, that love the hunt, right? Like they are truly in their heart of hearts salespeople. Finding a new client, finding the candidate, putting the two together. And I guess the other thing I would say is that it takes a tremendous amount of discipline. You just mentioned the temptation to just do what you like doing. Yeah. It is the discipline to always put your time in, whether that time is finding a new client, bringing in the job order, developing relationships with candidates, then this, the interviews and feedback, you got to love it. You've got to love it. You've got to master it to be on a 360 desk. And the interviewing of candidates and giving them feedback in a way, when you master that, I, I would say the, the most thank you notes I've ever had was from candidates that I gave feedback to. And as you, if you're trying to fill one role, you've got to say no to four people usually, or let them know that the client's gone with somebody else, but how you do it and how you give someone feedback, that's what ensures your longevity in running a 360 desk. Cause I can then phone you sometime in the future, talk to you sometime in the future when I have another job order. Yeah. What happens though in the staffing world is you have an easy out. You can blame the client, which I found really different compared to the corporate world where. Yeah. And so that's I, the difference between, I think, good and great 360 desk full yeah. cycle recruiters, because a full cycle recruiter understands that 50% of your equation is the candidate experience and to avoid having to give them their, your candidate went out on the interview because they trust you. And if you are not giving them really solid feedback or so a lot of the times I think it could be legit surge. Like sometimes clients are just like, nope, didn't like them. And I'm like, that's not good enough. I need to know why we're talking about a human being that took time out of their day to come to your office and meet with you. I think you're being a little bit altruistic in some ways of how candidates actually want feedback. Oh, oh no, I, I don't think I'm being candidates don't really Sometimes. want real feedback. <laughs> they don't honestly want to know. No, they don't. But the right, last right. step in the full cycle recruitment we'll move on is, yeah. is offering negotiate. If I could spend a hundred percent of my time in negotiating and offers and closing the deal when it comes to a candidate, mm -hmm. that's all I would do. This is the step that I love the step I excel at while well, everyone excels at giving an offer is a pretty good part of your job. Let's be honest. Yeah. But in negotiating, people don't realize that negotiating starts from the step one. This is where you're yes. qualifying your candidate as mm -hmm. you go through the process and making sure when you get to that end that you're an offer mm -hmm. that you've already closed it. 
this is just the semantics and finalizing it. Yeah. This, and recruiters don't do a great job at this, and it's something that we can improve. But let's move. You spoke quite a bit about sourcing. Give me an insight mm-hmm. on this article on sourcing and what your overall thoughts are. Organizations have people dedicated to just sourcing. That is finding the candidates. And usually it's it or sometimes handed off to somebody in talent acquisition. But the sourcer, in my definition, a true sourcer is someone who loves the hunt, loves finding the the person with the background, skills, education, experience, and accomplishments that we're trying to find. And I don't mean somebody who's just going to LinkedIn and is great at Boolean search. I think a great sourcer has an ability to think beyond just what's on the job order. They have this ability to take the requirements are and think, what if I found someone who had done this sort of background? So I'll give you an example. If an organization is looking for like a hotel manager. And right now there's, you know, an extreme shortage, hypothetically, of hotel managers. A great sourcer would be thinking in terms of what if it was somebody who came from mid-sized hospital setting or rural hospital setting or seniors care. There's so many other similar industries that we could potentially look at. And so it's that ability to think beyond The other big part of being a sourcer, and that is something that, again, if we define a sourcer is somebody who loves the hunt and finding the person, right, may not be the exact person to contact the candidate, but they would be the one to find them. And that is somebody who just loves tech. They know how to use it. They know where to look. And again, I think it all stems back to being a solution thinker and never being bound by, well, but this is the way we've always done it. It's just that innate curiosity. I think that's a key characteristic as well of someone who's a great sourcer, but having that tech savviness of knowing and thinking in terms of where would this ideal candidate, how do they think, where would they go? What communities do they belong to? How do I begin to become part of that community? Socially, there's so much more happening for a great sourcer. I think great sourcers also tend to be dedicated to a certain specific job family. Would you agree, Serge? I'm going to ask you a couple of questions is how many organizations actually have a sourcer working for them? Generally, it's they don't. I would say... 98% 98% of companies see recruitment doing the sourcing, which usually, or in a lot of companies, HR is doing the sourcing, which basically means they're posting the job. When you've got recruitment involved, you're now adding, they're sending like LinkedIn in mail messages, which is basically the extent of the sourcing they do. Then you go into usually very technical type organizations or organizations that having the people in place is absolutely critical to drive revenue is then they finally see, okay, we absolutely need someone that's constantly finding people. And it's really that private investigator that can dig in deep. It is very rare. You think so? Um, I don't know, Serge. 
I think it's tell me a company that, that has dedicated sorcerers right now. I I can think right, of, it, but I'm just, yeah. So I'm thinking rare. the likes of certainly in, in the oil and gas sector, there would be Trans Canada, Shell. These would be organizations with five thousand or more employees, and so the recruitment function is you're right. They're usually being very transactional. We have an open requisition. We need to fill it whether it's internal movement or external movement, that's the recruitment team. Organizations who also understand that they need a longer term vision. That is, they actually see recruitment or talent acquisition as a strategic part of what they do. They will have sourcing individuals, no different than, so if you look at smaller companies, and I love to draw this parallel to supply chain management, because in supply chain, you've got buyers, which I I would say there's a lot of sisterhood, brotherhood with recruiters, right? They're transactional, they're buyers, but you really need someone who has a deep understanding of suppliers and suppliers going right down to understanding the competitive nature of buying, say, steel or wire on a global basis. And how's that going to impact us when we need to buy it and the price and so on. Same sort of analogy I would apply to being a sourcer. I may not be involved in the transaction of we've got a job to fill, but we know that as long as we're in business, we are going to need a certain skill that you automated. No, do you know what? I mean, I do we, you and I follow a lot of the tech that's happening in Europe and there's been, there was a whole series on recruiting brain food around sourcing and how that could it be automated. I think at the end of the day, Serge, people do business with people like you'll you're still going to need to get a have a human get involved so you're not doing business with people because the way you explain it is a lot of cases the sorcerer is not the person reaching out to the person sometimes it's actually, not yeah like generally from what i'm seeing a mixture of both but generally why recruiters are so good at what they do and what they should be really good at is relationships so relationships mm-hmm. on the hiring manager side and relationships with the candidates if they know the candidates, which technology can tell them where the candidates are, who they are, and how to get a hold of them, there's plenty of tools out there that can do that. The recruiter is way better at handling that relationship and getting that candidate to the next step. Where recruiters generally struggle is the ability to go find these people and figure out where they are. We lean too heavily on on LinkedIn's and those types of tools that a tool that basically goes out takes your job description, any info you input, drives candidates that are out there that could potentially be a fit. And all you have to do is really reach out to them and with a very compelling message and something that, to your point of explaining of why they should come work for you and how do you approach it, like it or not, I think those types of technologies are going to take over a lot of the sourcing roles because a lot of companies, to your point, don't even understand what sourcing is. We can buy this technology for $20,000 a year that's going to give us candidates that we know we can approach. There's no guarantee they'll come in. I think most business will go down that route instead of hiring uh, a resource, a person that is a full-time sourcer. Yeah, you know, I don't necessarily agree with that. Because I believe it's the ability to always be pivoting and changing and looking at the new communities where these candidates would be. Technology will adapt faster than people, in my opinion. Yeah. 
I, I, well, I think, think it's about a pipe how dream. human I think nature, a... like human nature is to stay in what you're comfortable in as technology doesn't care. I think the role of a source is extremely important. I think we're all on the same page, but I don't think a lot of organizations see it the same way. The value of like the top of sourcer is invaluable to any company. Like, Oh God. Yeah. There's no doubt about it, but most people don't see it. So I personally see that technology that is based on sourcing and finding the candidates is going to become more prevalent, like it or not. In a lot of cases, it's probably better. That's just my opinion on it. Let's move on to a subject that I don't know what to think about. So okay. uh, obviously I'm on LinkedIn. I'm reading as much stuff that I can on talent acquisition. Yeah. And there's a post that came in front of me and i thought it was really interesting because caveat i'm not an expert in this space and it's something that i want to improve understanding diversity equity and inclusion so i i have gaps but i also Fair. have a pick okay so, so what what caught, that way. So, what caught your eye so madison butler who i would say hr famous and one of the things that she posted she said yesterday i tweeted that being a white woman in hr is not an automatic qualifier for dei work and when i heard that i'm like yeah, that makes sense. Then she writes, and I think this is where when you're trying to find common ground, calling people names is usually not the best approach. So she said, an HR Karen decided to argue Ooh. with me. And when she asked me to Google <laughs> her to prove her qualifications, I did. I shared a screenshot of her website to my Twitter in response. I'm like, okay, that's aggressive in my that's, mind. Yeah, that's poking the bear. Yeah, okay. But she puts out other points and... I, it's a tough one because we're both white. Um, let's obviously we're a podcast, but I'll, I'll give you that yeah. context. White women in HR have used their place of power to intimidate black people for as long as their department has existed. White Ooh. women have used their marginalizations and power simonists to cause harm in their lives and in our workplace. This is why working in HR is not an automatic qualifier to working in DEI. I agree. I'll just go through it, then I'll ask you. Okay. Your Okay, Being so. a woman in HR is not an automatic qualifier to working in DEI, 100%. And being a white woman in HR is not an automatic qualifier to working in DEI. So all good point approach, I'm not completely sold on. And Lino said something um, when he appeared on our show a couple of mm -hmm. weeks back that really hit me is um, being a woman doesn't mean you're not racist. And being a black man or woman doesn't mean you're not homophobic. There's always going to be some characteristics that fall in different spaces of diversity, equity, inclusion that you have to see a full view lens of it. So pretty big topic, pretty yeah. big viewpoint she has. Where do you stand here? I think there's a broader issue, and that is the assumption that HR should own diversity, equity, and okay, inclusion. Okay, talk about that. That's a good point. We have made the assumption that HR should own D, and I don't know if I agree with that, but yeah. you have way more viewpoints on that. Tell me right. what you think there. So I think when it does end up in HR, what are the go-tos? The go-tos are, let's examine our HR policies. And so does will HR policies change behavior? I, I don't think so. I really don't, because as many policies as you have, it really is incumbent upon the employees to read them. 
yeah. and understand what are the rules of the game and what are the consequences if we decide to not heed what the HR policy says. So does HR maybe need to back off? Maybe HR shouldn't be involved. I know that it's the human people and culture department, but like you, the fact is that does not mean you have any in-depth training or have any business whatsoever becoming any sort of authority on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, and so to your point around the fact that being a woman doesn't mean you're automatically not racist or that you're automatically not homophobic because you could very well. And I think HR has so many other things that brings value to the organization. The other part of this is, and this is maybe just my experience, but I do tend to think I'm not alone. And that is the role that HR plays in an organization. Many times HR is your last stop out the door, whether it's layoffs or terminations, HR's involved. So now you're going to take those same people and ask them to lead the efforts on diversity, equity, and inclusion when you're, as a human being, you're connecting them with the fact that somebody you worked with for the last, say, 10 years was laid off and it was the HR person that had to deliver the message. Whether or not HR had no say in the matter, you don't know that. HR may very well have been the department to say, here's the spreadsheet and these are the people we're going to be letting go next week. Anyways, so when we muddy that emotional attachment to HR's role in an organization, oh, and now we're going to also toss in, they're the keepers of DE and I think it's a bad recipe. I think it's a mistake. Would you agree that generally HR departments have been run by a woman and a lot of cases a white woman? Is that a fair statement? Certainly is here in Canada. Okay. In Canada. I I can't speak globally, but I tend to think that certainly here in Canada, I would go so far as to say North America is a trend. And if we dial back to why that is, when you look organizationally, and one of the things that that we both agree on is if there are women in senior leadership, there's more likely to for women to progress within the organization. And guess which role on the executive leadership team is always held by a woman? HR. Yeah. Now, and there's wonderful reasons supporting why that's a really good idea to have women on the executive leadership team. However, if you are the only woman on the executive leadership team, and I know I'm being very terse to say that you're the token woman, because if you are one of 11 on an executive team and the only woman, boy, you you don't think that is going to be, whose voice is going to get squashed the most? Yeah. Oh, I've seen it's 11, it. First, it's yeah. 11 to one. I've seen it. Yeah. Oh no. We could look through every single company's website of the major corporations here in Calgary. And you could probably count that 90% of them have one woman on their executive leadership team. So dialing that back, cause I didn't want to say anything controversial cause that's not the point <laughs> I'm using what the generalization and the market is. The point that Madison puts here is historically HR has been the gatekeeper of anti-blackness at work. Maybe a strong point, but if I'm in her shoes, maybe I feel that way. 
because I'm in HR, I am going to run diversity, equity, and inclusion. And Madison is saying, hold on. Yeah. We've had a lot of challenges. And if you look at the demographics of people that work in companies, the demographics are, are shifted dramatically on the white side. So I'm like, how do I know that you're on our side to make it better? Just because you're in HR, it's like saying for 30, 40, 100, 200 years, you've been the gatekeeper of keeping us out. I'm learning search, like you said, white people with of privilege. Yep. Certainly where we sit in our professional lives, for sure. And I can't possibly know what sort of experience a black person in Calgary would have. The viewpoint that she has is a very valid viewpoint. And I've seen it many of times that automatically HR is diversity, equity, inclusion. And she made me think, I'm like, you're probably right. That is probably not the right approach. All right. So a lot of topics of discussion. Yeah. Anything this was going a hot on one. in your space. <laughs> this was a hot one. Do you know, I've got lots of fun stuff coming up, but more so on the, the personal side, just parties and second vaccination and looking forward to being around other humans. I'm getting face my second face. vaccination tomorrow, so awesome. I will be ready for my hot boy summer. So I okay. got the condoms and the KY <laughs> and ready for the summer, as Joel Cheeseman would say. <laughs> Cue the music. Awesome. Yeah. Serge, you have a wonderful weekend, and we will talk soon. What was it like to be there for historical sports moments and unforgettable performances? To be behind the scenes? On PressBox Access, you'll hear from me, Todd Jones, and other sports writers about their experiences with the greatest athletes, coaches, and sports events of the past half century. We'll share some stories behind the stories, some big, some small, and some we've only told each other. Let us buy you around on PressBox Access.